We also have photoreceptors. The prefix photo comes from light. So these are found in the retina, in the eye. Thermoreceptors that detect warm sensations, cold sensations, and mechanoreceptors that respond to mechanical or physical deformation like pressure of the skin. A special type of receptor is called nociceptor, and these are actually pain receptors. These receptors respond to any type of damage. And the damage may be caused by excessive heat, excessive cold, uh, pressure, chemicals also may cause a stimulation of the pain receptors. Neurotransmitters are related to the pain sensations and specifically two glutamate and substance P have been found to be related to pain sensations. And the pain sensation, as the other sensations, uh, can be enhanced by emotions. Emotions, concepts, expectations. But the pain receptor is more than others. It has a very strong emotional component. And that will alter the perception of these uh, uh, sensations of pain. Now, according to the type of receptors, uh, type of information that they bring to the brain, to the nervous system, they can be proprioceptors. Proprioceptors are receptors that we have in skeletal muscle, uh, musculoskeletal organs like tendons, ligaments, joints, the same muscles, and they help to inform the brain about the position of our body. The different degrees of stretching of the muscle, uh, uh, we can be aware of the different body positions. Cutaneous receptors, which are the skin receptors that detect touch, pressure, heat, cold, pain, and special senses. We're gonna speak about the special senses today, including vision, hearing, taste, smell, and equilibrium. And this is what I said at the beginning, that's another criteria. The receptors may be exteroceptors or interoceptors, depending on uh, the stimulus come from outside or the stimulus uh, is uh, or something happening inside our body. What can happen in our body? Well, blood pressure, there are receptors for blood pressure receptors for pH, and receptors that detect the oxygen concentrations. And they trigger different types of responses uh, to keep the homeostasis. The receptors, they show some characteristics, and one of them is called adaptation. Some receptors, they adapt quickly, and some receptors don't adapt at all. There are two types of adaptation or types of receptors that adapt in different ways, fast adapting and slow adapting. Phasic are called the ones fast adapting. How we understand this, if we apply a stimulus,
the lines, the peaks here, represent action potentials. So we apply the stimulus here initially, and we generate action potentials. And the action potentials will decrease in frequency along the time. And when we withdraw the stimulus, then during this time, we see that few action potentials have been fired, meaning that the less signals are getting into the brain. So these receptors, uh, they adapt fast. How we perceive this, we had an experiment last Thursday about the coins or objects that you have on your hands. After some minutes, you don't feel the coins anymore. Or the touch receptors we have in the skin that detect the presence of the clothes. After some time, we don't detect the presence anymore. But the other type of uh, adaptation is shown by the tonic receptors, which are slow adapting. We apply a stimulus, action potentials are generated, and through all the time the stimulus is applied, the action potentials are fired with the same frequency, meaning that the brain will receive the same signal at the same frequency, and the brain will perceive this as a constant and without variation stimulus, pain receptors. Pain receptors, no matter how many times I grab a needle and poke your skin, you will always feel the same intensity of the pain. The same signals will get to the brain, and the same frequency and the same intensity. We also see this in some special senses. Uh, smell is one of the receptors that adapt fast. And thinking about common experiences, smell is quickly adapting. We see this a lot when we get into the anatomy classes and we have to do dissection. We get into the cadaver room. And the first day that we enter in the cadaver room, the smell is very strong. But since we have to be inside like for 30 minutes, 40 minutes doing dissections and reviewing muscles and organs, well, after some five minutes, average the smell is not too bad still feel it but it's not as strong as at the beginning but if someone else comes in then they will feel the smell very strong the smell is something that adapts quickly and regarding the nerves or the nerve sensations um, no matter how the sensory neurons are stimulated, only one sensory modality will be perceived. So that means that the specific, if the receptor that is stimulated is a pressure receptor, that will stimulate a sensory neuron, but that, but that particular receptor will bring the signal and will be interpreted as a particular sensation. And paradoxical cold is a perception of cold at different temperatures. That's a little bit what we experienced last time in the lab when we put your hand in uh, hot water and it gets adapted. And then you put it in the room temperature water and it feels like really cold because your uh, hand was uh, in a very hot temperature. How the potentials work in the receptors is the same idea. It's the same idea of the 
EPSPs and action potentials. Actually, the action potential uh, happens when the threshold is reached. But what we mentioned before as EPSPs, here will be the analogy will be with uh, generator potentials or receptor potentials. Because the stimuli will depolarize will depolarize the dendrites of the sensory neuron and make this small amounts of electricity called generator potentials. And then more stimuli will make the memory depolarize more until when reaching the threshold, then the action potential will be generated and we have the sensation traveling along the axon of the sensory neuron. This is uh, um, the description of this type of um, response that we call phasic and tonic. Phasic receptors like pacinian corpuscles, which are uh, receptors that detect deep pressure. If the pressure is maintained for a while, the generation potential is diminished. So they will stimulate or evoke less number of action potentials and then therefore along the time the sensations will be adapted. But in tonic receptors the generation pot generator potential is proportional to the intensity of the stimulus. To the stimulus persist the generation potential gets stronger and stronger and increased intensity will result in increased frequency of action potential after the threshold is reached, of course. There's always a threshold to be reached before the um, action potential is generated. So let's see some of the receptors or skin receptors, cutaneous receptors, and study some of their characteristics. For some of these sensations, pain, cold, heat, what we see actually are free dendrites of sensory neurons. Remember the sensory neurons are in the, the bodies of these neurons are in the dorsal root ganglion. And these neurons are sensory neurons or pseudo-unipolar neurons. Thinking about the structure, the shape or the type of neuron. And the dendrites, they travel along the nerve, and they reach the skin, and they are just there in, in between the cells of the skin for pain, cold, and heat. But touch and pressure receptors, they have special structures around the dendrites. And they are known as Merkel discs, Meissner's corpuscles, Pacinian corpuscles, and Ruffini corpuscles. Many years ago, when they started discovering things or describing things in the anatomy, they usually gave their names to the structure. That's why we have names here, Merkels, Meissner, Placini, and Ruffini. If you do our uh, research, finding out who these guys were, then you will find many other things that they did. They just gave their names to the 
different parts or receptors that they described here. And uh, here in this graph, we see some description of their function. Here we see the free nerve endings, touch, pain, hot, cold. They are just in between the cells of the epidermis. Masoner corpuscles, which detect changes in the texture. That's how we can feel a surface is smooth or rough. And if you see, they are located in the dermal papillae between the dermis and epidermis. Merkel discs are also located there. And they also have to do with the texture, with the presence of grooves. You detect that change in the surface of the object. Ruffini endings, they are deeper in the dermis and they respond to skin stretch. And the Pacinian corpuscle, which detects deep pressure or vibration, and they are even deeper. Pacinian are actually in between the dermis and hypodermis, deep pressure. Was that? Can you repeat them again? So you said that Misner's? Yeah, Misner's changes in the texture. Changes in the texture, yeah. Between and the epidermis. Mm-hmm. The Merkel discs, they detect also texture, but more changes that are like um, presence of indentations on the surfaces. Skin stretch. Yeah, and they are deep in the dermis. Now remember, pain, heat, and cold are free dendrites that are in the in the epidermis, and cold receptors. There seems to be more cold receptors than hot receptors. That's one of the the things that are supposed to uh, be obtained as conclusions of the experiment that we did last Thursday. Uh, you're supposed to detect the presence of more cold receptors than hot receptors. Although sometimes it's hard because, as you have seen probably, um, there are many bias uh, detecting this because the subject gets confused with the cold sensations and touch sensations. And But sometimes we are able to detect this and uh, be able to confirm that there are more receptors for cold and hot receptors in that particular area. These receptors are stimulated by, by cold temperature, of course, and inhibited by warm. Um, some of these cold receptors, they have a cross-reaction to substances present in um, uh, some chemicals like menthol, menthol that, that is used in uh, some types of creams and um, like this, uh, I call icy hot or something like that. You get those creams and put it on your skin. You feel cold. Feel cold. That's mental. That excites, excites or stimulates the cold receptors. You get like a cross, weird sensation, confusion, weird sensation. It's cold. It's not cold. Well, it's uh, cold receptors have been stimulated by these 
chemical substance. And the ranges, the temperature that they detect goes between 8 and 28 degrees Celsius. If it goes lower than 8, again, it's confusing. You just feel cold. It's hard to say if it's colder. You're able to say if it's colder and differentiate the temperature of uh, 16 and 8, like subjectively, but lower than 8 is hard to say unless someone tells you that it's colder. And the warm receptors are deeper in the dermis, and in the, in the opposite way, they are stimulated by the warm and uh, um, by warming and inhibited by cooling. At some point, the warm receptors, um, they, well, depending on the temperature, they don't detect higher temperatures. They also have a limit. But then if it's hotter than that, pain receptors are stimulated. And when you feel pain because of some physical injury related with hot temperatures, it's not the warm receptors that you are uh, stimulating, they are pain receptors over the temperature of 45 approximately. That pain, which is experienced by a hot object, a very hot stimulus, is detected by some receptors which are nociceptors, pain receptors, called capsaicin receptor, which is activated at 43, 45 degrees Celsius or higher. And that's usually the point at which we are able to stand the hot temperature without feeling pain. If you get your hand into a beaker with hot water, if it's higher than 45, usually it's very uncomfortable, very painful. You feel warm, but then at some point you feel that it's painful. And this type of receptor is the one found in chili peppers, the spicy sensation that we have in the, in the mouth, which is a mixture of, uh, and that's why it's called, it's called hot, because it's kind of confusing. It feels hot initially, but then it feels pain. You feel pain. So the spicy, it's not a taste, it's actually pain. And these pain receptors, or nociceptors, remember they are dendrites, they can be myelinated or unmyelinated. And that makes some difference because the myelinated neurons, the myelinated fibers of these neurons, they transmit this type of pain which is sudden, sharp pain. Like when you're poked with a needle, feel that quick, sharp, stabbing pain. That is a sensation conducted by myelinated neurons. But instead, if the fibers are unmyelinated, the pain will be different. You will feel it as something different. Like a dull pain, persistent pain. That's usually the pain that we feel from um, uh, if you have an intestinal problem or uh, colic pain from the intestines. 
sometimes, many times, you are unable to tell where exactly it's coming from. You feel pain all over. Anything that hurts all over. Where exactly? I don't know. It hurts here, but also there. And, then, and it's stabbing sharp? No. It's like a pain that is there. It comes very slowly, persists for some seconds, and then goes away. But it's always it's a very different sensation. Because it's transmitted by I am unmyelinated neurons. Remember, we discussed the difference in the speed of transmission of the action potentials in myelinated and unmyelinated. Myelinated, they carry the sensation much faster. And those receptors can also be activated by chemicals released by damage. Damage. Um, uh, tissues like when there's a sudden change in the pH, damaged cells, or mechanical stimulus that uh, damages the cells, pain receptors will be stimulated. What about itching sensation? That's different. Itch sensation is stimulated by histamine. Histamine is a chemical that is released by mast cells, basophils, which are cells of the immune system. Usually when there is an immune reaction, like an allergic reaction, these cells release this chemical called histamine. And that's what it makes the, the sensation of itch. We usually use medications called antihistamines for that like Benadryl, which is a very common medication. It's an antihistamine. So it will block the stimulation uh, produced by the histamine. Yeah? Is there a relationship between histamine release and dehydration? And what? Dehydration. Dehydration. No, it's a different <coughs> mechanism. It's a different mechanism. <coughs> Why? Well, because in the allergies, No, no, dehydration will not trigger the, uh, the, the release of histamine. There always has to be some immune response, so these cells will release that. But that can be made, produced by other things, but dehydration is usually not related with this type of sensation. And there's something that is also called chronic itch, which some people have. Um, for example, people with uh, gallstones, when the gallstones are obstructing the biliary ducts with the gallbladder, at some point these people complain of chronic itch. And apparently it's this pigment called bilirubin that stimulates uh, these receptors on the skin and produces a sensation of chronic itch. It's not related with, with histamine. And these people, when you give the antihistamines, they, they don't respond to that. The itch is not controlled. Exactly. You treat the gallbladder and uh, the H will go away. It's usually um, a gallstone that is obstructing the biliary ducts and the uh, gallstone has to be removed so the circulation of bile is restored and the bilirubin, that pigment, will not be increased in the blood and will not stimulate the skin.
about psoriasis? Psoriasis is different. It's a skin lesion. This is skin. It's a problem of the skin, of the epidermis, which can produce this, since it's immune reaction, psoriasis has to do with uh, immune reaction. Uh, histamine is released by these mass cells and basophils. Now, how all these sensations travel in the nervous system? In different ways. For uh, pressure receptors, proprioceptors, the pathways are like the graphic is showing. Starting with proprioceptors, which are, we said, which are in the muscles, tendons, joints, or mechanoreceptors like the Pacinian corpuscle in the skin. And you can see in the graph that the first order neuron, the body of the neuron is in the dorsal root ganglion, <laughs> DRG. The dendrites are connected to the receptors. And the axon of these first order neurons in the DRG, they will connect or travel in the spinal cord in the posterior or dorsal columns, that's where they travel. They go up, ascending, afferent. And they will uh, uh, synapse with the second neuron, which is located in the medulla oblongata. That's where you see the body of the second neuron or second order neuron. And then we see a decusation or crossing over of the fibers. The fibers are going to the contralateral side. And they keep traveling up. And where they go? To the thalamus. The thalamus is the relay center where all sensations come. That's where the third order neuron is. And from the thalamus, from the thalamus, the next synapse will be with a neuron of the cerebral cortex. Post-central gyrus parietal lobe. That is where the primary somatosensory cortex is. And in the cortex, when the action potentials arrive here to the cortex, with the cortex, the neurons of the cortex, they have very complex connections and they will interpret the sensations that are arriving. That's what we call perception. The pathways, they carry the sensation, the action potentials. But then when it gets to the cerebral cortex, the perception process occurs. And then I interpret, is this a pressure from uh, something uh, uh, compressing my body or is it a pressure from a massage or whichever it is, the cerebral cortex will interpret. That's for pressure receptors and proprioceptors. And for heat, cold, and pain receptors, we have a different pathway here. First order neuron, dendrites. Remember, there are three dendrites in the skin, nociceptors, thermoreceptors. But the dendrites belong to the sensory neuron, which is in the DRG. The next neuron, it's in the spinal cord, which is an interneuron. And from there, the axons travel up 
in the anterolateral quadrant. This is uh, white matter of the spinal cord. And you see that there is a crossing over. It goes to the contralateral side. And it travels in the contralateral side, which is the second order neuron. The dorsal root ganglion is the first. The second order neuron, in this case, is in the gray matter of the spinal cord. And the third order neuron is a neuron in the thalamus that connects to the cerebral cortex. Always, as you see, the thalamus is the place where all these sensations arrive, and from there they are sent to the cerebral cortex. Something interesting happens in, uh, in relation to pain, and that is called referred pain. Referred pain is a pain that it is interpreted by the cerebral cortex from coming from a part of the body, but that part of the body doesn't have any damage or apparent cause that is producing that pain. We had the experiment, um, there is an experiment in physiology where we stimulate this by tapping against the ulnar nerve, which is running here, the medial epicondyle of the humerus. And that's what we sometimes experience when we hit that part on the table and we feel a weird sensation traveling through the, these two fingers. But there's nothing wrong with these fingers, but it hurts here. It hurts here. Why it hurts here? Well, the damage or temporary damage is stimulus is here in the elbow. There's nothing wrong with these fingers, but the sensation is felt coming from here. That is called referred pain, and it's also seen in um, organs that have some problem, like the heart, gallbladder, intestines, pancreas, kidneys. And this is an example of the heart. We can explain how this happens. This is a heart, and you can see some fibers, dendrites actually, connecting to the myocardium. But those dendrites belong to a sensory neuron, which is located in the dorsal root ganglion. At the same time, that dorsal root ganglion houses many, many sensory neurons coming from other places. And some of these neurons, they have dendrites coming from the skin, skin receptors. Some of them nociceptors or pain receptors. So the dorsal root ganglion is a mixture of sensory neurons. But those sensory neurons, they connect, they synapse, as we have seen in the previous slide, with the second or the neuron, which is in the gray matter of the spinal cord. And here we see some convergence, meaning that these neurons, some of them, they diverge into few neurons in the gray matter of the spinal cord. As we see here, these two neurons that are in the dorsal root ganglion, they both are connected to one neuron in the gray matter of the spinal cord. With that gray that, that neuron in the spinal cord is bringing the sensation up to the thalamus. So the thalamus receives information about pain coming from this sensory neuron. But 
that is a mixed sensation because it's bringing sensations from the heart and sensations from the skin. And sometimes there is a confusion there at the cerebral cortex level. Cerebral cortex receives information, pain coming from there. But that there is a mixed information coming from the heart and also from this area of the skin. And the cerebral cortex sometimes makes this up and this interprets like something hurting in your arm, in your left arm. And that's why one of the symptoms of heart attack or myocardial infarction is, well, chest, pressure in the chest, but also pain in the left arm. Pain in the left arm and in the neck, which is nothing wrong with the arm, the problem is in the heart. That's referred pain, and that's because of this um, um, divergence that happens in the dorsal ganglion and the spinal cord. This is just one example. There are many other examples. Like people that have problems of the gallbladder, like gallstones, when they have an inflammation of the gallbladder, well, the pain is here. Yeah, that's where the gallbladder is, in the hypogonadal region, but then the pain sometimes is felt in the right shoulder. There's a right shoulder. There's nothing wrong with the shoulder. The problem is the gallbladder. The same with the pancreas. And people with pancreatitis, they refer pain in the back. There's nothing wrong in the back. The pain is coming from the pancreas. But this mechanism explains the referred pain. Receptive fields, all these receptors, all these receptors, they are connected, or better say, they innervate an area of the skin. That's what, that area of the skin is called receptive fields. And the, recept the size of the receptive field depends on how many receptors are in that particular region of the skin. There are few receptors in the back, the skin of the back and legs, meaning that the receptors feel, the receptive fields are large. And that explains the, the experiment that we have on Thursday of two-point threshold or two-point discrimination. Because as long as you stimulate the same receptive field, you will, your brain will perceive that as only one stimulus. But in the fingertips, there are many receptors meaning that the receptive fields are smaller. So the distance will be shorter if we make this experiment with two sharp objects because distance is shorter, you are stimulating different receptive fields. They are smaller when there are many receptors. That happens in the fingertips. That's what we have in this picture, the different size of receptive fields depending on the number of neurons and that explains the different distances that we get when we have that experiment meaning that when there's more distance found to discriminate between two objects there are few receptors the receptive fields are larger but in areas where you can find the distance is very small it means there are many receptors the receptive fields are smaller and the fingertips, of course, as a place where we have uh, greater tactile acuity, and we can feel.
feel very very small objects and even feel the texture um, and tell uh, recognize patterns or even read with the braille system and uh, you can even increase that accuracy with training questions to this point let's get into special senses starting with taste and smell which are both chemoreceptors taste for taste we have receptors uh, called taste buds and they are located in these structures that we found in the tongue a structure that contains epithelial cells with microvilli that goes out of a pore, the taste pore. And the cells that are called gustatory cells or taste cells, they are in the middle of this taste bud. You can see the sensory nerve fibers, dendrites of sensory neurons connecting to the gustatory cells, which are the receptors. Gustatory cells are the uh, taste receptor. The whole structure that looks like an onion is the taste bud, which opens up to the surface of the tongue through some pore called taste pore. These taste buds are distributed in the tongue, and we can find them in the structures called papillae, which are different kind of bumps that we have on the surface of the tongue. There are different types. Uh, fungi form, we studied this in anatomy when we, we can see it actually, uh, this dermal uh, papillae. Fungi form, circumvolate, and foliate. The fungi form are usually found in the anterior surface of the tongue circumvolate are in the posterior surface foliate foliate are in the sides of the tongue and there's a difference because cranial nerves which are the nerves that receive all these sensations and bring it to the central nervous system are different from different areas of the tongue the anterior surface the anterior surface is usually innervated by the facial nerve. Anterior surface of the tongue. And that's what we see here in the graph. This nerve called chordae tympani is actually the facial nerve or seventh cranial nerve. And in the posterior surface is innervated by a different cranial nerve called glossopharyngeal or cranial nerve number nine. And as you see, the fungi form are more in the anterior surface and the circumvallate more in the posterior surface. Two cranial nerves are associated with the taste uh, receptors. The foliate receptor, foliate papillae, they are more related with the sensations of touch or texture. And what are the pathways of this special sense? As we see here, there are two cranial nerves involved, facial nerve 
from the anterior aspect of the tongue, a glossopharyngeal from the posterior aspect of the tongue. And all they are coming into the medulla oblongata where they will synapse with a neuron there in the medulla oblongata. And from the medulla oblongata, it goes to the thalamus. Same thing. Thalamus receives all sensations. And from there to cerebral cortex. Some of this is located in the insula, that lobe that is hidden between the frontal and temporal lobe. We have five different types or five categories of taste. Salty, sour, sweet, bitter, and umai. And how we explain the different sensations? It explains the different types of receptors and mechanisms of depolarization of membrane of the gustatory cell. The salty sensation, it is perceived when sodium channels are activated and that makes the cell depolarize. And that depolarization, you can feel it in the, you can see it in the graph, sodium channels, and then they make this cell depolarize and there's a synapse here with the dendrite of the sensory neuron. For the sour sensation, there are hydrogen channels that mediate this depolarization. And at the other side, with the dendrite of the sensory neuron, there's still a synapse which works pretty much in the same way with calcium and a neurotransmitter that we study as, as we study in the synapses. Sweet and umai, they stimulate sugars, they stimulate the membrane through sugars or amino acids, and there's a G protein mechanism involved here. And that makes a difference. There's a second messenger. And that second messenger, uh, will depolarize the membrane and connect to the dendrite of the sensory neuron. And finally, the bitter sensation is mediated by the kinin receptors that stimulate G proteins also. Through second messengers, stimulating the dendrite of the sensory neuron. So different tastes, they have different mechanisms. Uh, sweet and umai, they have the combination, they have the same uh, stimulated receptors in the same cell, depending on the sugar or amino acid present there. The umai um, taste is not found in some types of seasonings, which is a mixture, it describes a mixture of a bitter and sweet and uh, very hard to define. That's why it was described as, as a different, as a fifth category of taste. And it was later found that different receptors uh, work for this sensation.
That's related with the taste. Not much to say. Same as smell. These two are very straightforward. Chemoreceptors usually work in the same, in the same way, stimulated by the chemical substances. The smell is located in a group of structures called the olfactory apparatus. Smell or olfaction. The receptors are found in the epithelium of the nasal cavity, in the roof of the nasal cavity. Remember a little bit of anatomy here? We have a bone here, which has this bone marking called cribiform plate. This bone is the ethmoid bone. And this cribiform plate has many holes, many, many holes in it. Through these holes is that we see the axons of, of olfactory nerve going through. The receptor cells are in the olfactory epithelium in the roof of the nasal cavity. And they, are, they have cells in both sides called supporting cells, basal cells, it's part of the epithelium. But in between these cells we have the receptor cells. They open the dendrites to a mucous layer located on the surface of this epithelium. And that's where they detect the presence of chemicals that mixed with mucus and fluid that is in the surface of this epithelium. And that's how they detect the different types of smell. And they go through the holes, the axon of these cells, they go through the holes of the cribriform plate to connect to the olfactory bulb. Olfactory bulb is resting on the cranial side of the cribriform plate of the ethmoid bone. Here we see a more detailed view of these uh, pathways. We see in green now the olfactory receptor neurons, and they send the axons through the cribriform plate of the ethmoid bone. And all this is the olfactory bulb, that nervous structure which is called the first cranial nerve. Here they connect with neurons. There are interneurons here and secondary neurons matrial cells, duft cells. And after that connection, the axons of these neurons, they will be part of the olfactory nerve or first cranial nerve. First neuron, second neuron, and remember this smell will not reach the thalamus. This is the only sensation that will not be sent through the thalamus. No, it won't reach the thalamus. And how these uh, cells work, the particles or chemicals, in this particular case are called odorants, are detected when they're mixed with fluid, mucus on the surface of this epithelium. And they stimulate these receptors. There are thousands of receptors, different types of receptors that react in different ways. That's why we can detect many, many different types of smells and a mixture of smells. And now these cells, they tend to decrease in number with the age. 
there's any any part of the epithelium this epithelium also suffers with the aging process that's something that we see sometimes in people elderly after 80 85 sometimes they lose their appetite and they lose weight they don't want to eat they don't want to eat because they are unable to feel some smells they have lost some receptors that's called anosmia and since taste and smell are related and that's related with the appetite sensation also they have this problem because of loss of smell receptors uh, in the olfactory epithelium. Well, these receptors, they work under the G protein mechanism that ends in sodium channels and calcium channels that will depolarize the membrane. That's how this uh, mechanism works at molecular level. You see, all these sensations, they are the same. Depolarization of the membrane, action potentials. Cerebral cortex will interpret, depending on where these sensations are coming and uh, which connections they have. So where they go? These neurons, called mitral, tufted, which are in the olfactory bulb, they go to the cortex, straight to the cortex. There is an area of the cerebral cortex in the frontal and temporal lobe, which are the primary olfactory cortex. And there are interconnections through interneurons through the amygdala, hippocampus, and limbic system. And the prefrontal cortex there's an area on the prefrontal cortex that receives also the taste. So there are interneurons connected to the prefrontal cortex from smell and from taste. And that's why these two sensations are related to each other. Whatever we enjoy the food more if we are able to smell it. And we feel the taste. There's an interconnection at the level of the prefrontal cortex. Questions to this point? <laughs>